You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The reading this morning for sermon comes from Acts 19, 21 through 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business... From this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's friends, companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning to hear from you. We're so grateful for your word. 
that during a time of the year when there are family get-togethers and there are days off work and there are lots of exciting and interesting things happening and people can be tired and exhausted and it can be daunting to think about a new year and, and all that we want to change in this new year, it is easy for us to be distracted. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would clear all unnecessary distractions away and that we would have a posture of a glad reception as the word is taught this morning, not, not because of who is teaching it, not because of where it is being taught, um, but because of who authored this word. This is your word, and we want to hear from you. So, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some time ago, I told you about a church in China called Early Rain Covenant Church. Early Rain Covenant Church is a doctrinally sound church pastored by a man named Wang Yi. On December 9th, 2018, the Chinese authorities broke down the doors of church members and leaders' homes and arrested more than 100 people. Uh, many of you probably read about this in the news. Uh, I mentioned it several months back. Well, just a few days ago, several news outlets reported that a closed-door trial had taken place the day after Christmas at a court in Chengdu, China, and Pastor Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison. And these were his crimes. Inciting subversion of state power and operating an illegal business. World Magazine explained the charges brought against Pastor Yi. This is taken from an article they posted uh, just a few days ago on January 2nd. An official statement by the church stressed Wang had not committed any crimes. Christian books that Early Rain had printed at issue in Wang's trial were used for pastoring the congregants and for evangelism rather than profit, those thus debunking the charge of an illegal business operation. At the same time, Wang had often preached that Christians should submit to authorities in power in accordance with Scripture and had never done or said anything that amounts to inciting to subvert state power. Friends, why does persecution of this sort take place? And this is not new. It's been happening since the beginning of the spread of Christianity as we've seen all throughout the book of Acts. But why do some respond to the gospel and those who embrace the gospel with such contempt, such disdain, and even violence? I believe our text this morning helps us understand why, at least some of the reasons why there is and has been such fierce opposition to the gospel. My hope is that this morning's message will help equip each of us should we ever face this sort of gospel opposition. But I also hope that our study will encourage all of us to pray. 
to pray regularly and fervently for those whom God has called to live out their faith in the face of great hostility. So on the heels of Luke's record of God's continued growth of his church through unexpected and unusual circumstances, like the confrontation between the demon and the sons of Sceva, which is where we left off, here's what Luke records next. Look at it again with me. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men... You know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Friends, some develop a hatred for the gospel because the gospel transforms people. That's our first observation. Some develop a hatred for the gospel because the gospel transforms people. You can see it in verse 26. Demetrius explains, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods are made with hands are not gods. When someone is confronted by the truth of the gospel... And the Holy Spirit attends to that proclamation of the gospel and grants saving grace. The one who receives Christ becomes, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Essentially, this man named Demetrius, a silversmith and worshiper of Artemis, Listen, he is, he is unintentionally affirming that the gospel works. He's sharing with those gathered around him that the message Paul has been and is declaring, well, it's really changing people. And he doesn't like that. Notice how Demetrius phrases this. This radical change is not something positive in his mind. No, he claims that Paul is persuading people to turn away. Oh, turn away from what? Oh, in the mind of Demetrius, Paul is persuading people to turn away from what is right. But notice that the text makes clear what is actually happening. Multitudes in Ephesus and throughout Asia, in fact, it, it seems to Demetrius that everybody is hearing the gospel. And in hearing the gospel, they are embracing it and they're turning away from false worship and foolish gods to worship and serve the living and true God. 
Again, brothers and sisters, this is an unintentionally glorious testimony to the power of the gospel. The truth concerning Jesus, the the message that Paul is persuading people to embrace is turning them away from the emptiness of everything they have ever known and they are finding true and lasting hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me make two quick observations under this main heading here. First, don't skip over how the text describes the witness of Paul. I've mentioned it already, but Paul is not passive in his gospel witness. I've mentioned it, but Paul does something very specific, and I love the way the text describes it here. He's he's working hard to present the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, in a way that is compelling. He's pleading with sinners to repent and believe, and he's doing this in a way that is both urgent and cogent. His gospel presentation was clear. It was logical. It was convincing. We've seen this as we've studied his messages already. Now, please don't hear me saying that we alone can persuade people into the kingdom of God. Scripture is clear that unless the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes and breathes life into spiritual death, no one will ever truly believe the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the example of Paul here does remind us that the means by which God has promised to bring new life to sinners is through the passionate and persuasive witness of his people. So let's be challenged to follow in the footsteps of our brother Paul. Let's study the gospel diligently so that we can present it persuasively. Charles Spurgeon captured well what it means to persuade sinners of the gospel while also understanding the necessity of the Spirit's miraculous work. He said, we must not only argue from the scriptures, relate our experience, and give clear statements of gospel truth, but we must also carry the war into the heart. The follower of Christ must know how to take the scaling ladder and fix it against the wall of the conscience and climb it sword in hand to meet the man face to face in a sacred duel for the capture of his heart. Spurgeon continues, he must not, the one witnessing, he must not flinch to tell the faults he knows or deal with the errors he perceives. There must be a consecrated self-denial about the one witnessing so that it matters not to him even though he should draw down the wrath of his hearer upon his head. One thing he must aim at, that he may persuade him to be a Christian 
and for this he must strike home, coming to close quarters, if perhaps by God's grace, right, here's the tension, if perhaps by God's grace he may prick the man in his heart, slay his hostility, and bring him into captivity to Jesus. Friends, I think this is a reminder we need. Right? We believe in the doctrines of grace. Some of you would wave the flag of Calvinism. We believe this is what the Bible teaches, and yet it can, it can, if misunderstood or misapplied, it can produce in us a very passive approach to sharing Christ. Now, this is not what we see in the book of Acts. This is not what we see modeled by the Apostle Paul. This is not what we're commanded to do. We are commanded to persuade unbelievers that Christ loves them and that he died for them in their place and he will receive them if they will return in repentance and faith. Now, how can we know? How can we know the gospel has taken root in someone's life? Well, I think we see two things here, right? Paul is persuading people are changing. Paul is persuading people are changing. This is how we know the gospel has taken root in someone's life. Their belief will produce behavior. This is what Demetrius is highlighting in verse 26 when he says that Paul has turned people away. He means that something has radically changed. They aren't doing what they used to do. Whatever Paul's message was, when it was embraced, it produced obvious and unignorable change. Brothers and sisters, I love, I love the simplicity of this. In a very real sense, this is our task as believers and as a church, isn't it? We faithfully declare the gospel urgently, cogently, and the Holy Spirit changes people. And when God is working in this way, onlooking unbelievers can't ignore it. Even they know something has happened. Now, some of you have experienced this. When God saved you and made you new in Christ, the people in your life couldn't help but notice that something had happened. And of course, like Demetrius here in our text, the response to your conversion may not have been very positive. In fact, I know that's true for some of you because I've, I've heard your stories that when you came to faith in Christ, your life began to radically change. A lot of the people in your life didn't think that was good. My friend, if you've experienced that or if that's you now, remember. Remember that when that unbelieving friend or family member mocks or belittles the change that's taken place in your life, what they're unintentionally doing is giving testimony to the undeniable reality 
that the gospel works. They wouldn't say it this way, but what they've recognized is that Jesus has changed you. Some respond to the gospel with anger and animosity because it really does change people and they don't like that. It makes them feel uncomfortable. In fact, it may mean that something is wrong with them or something is wrong with what they believe. I think most of us in some way or another have seen this kind of angry response to the gospel. But I want you to see another reason some respond in anger. First, it's because the gospel really does change people. Second, it's because the gospel confronts idolatry. The gospel confronts idolatry. What is the scene that's unfolding in our text this morning? We've already talked about him, but verse 24 introduces us to Demetrius, a silversmith who made little models and relics of the temple for the goddess Artemis, who was also the Roman goddess Diana. The temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as you can imagine, people would travel from all over to come and visit this temple. And before they went back home, they would buy souvenirs. They would buy little models or relics of the goddess or her temple so that when they returned home, they could have an idol to worship. In this pagan context, multitudes of people were enslaved to false worship. David Peterson explains, although Ephesus was the home of many cults, the most prominent and powerful deity for the Ephesians was Artemis. The mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto was associated with health and help of various kinds and was worshipped because of her lordship over supernatural powers. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that this kind of idolatry is both silly and heartbreaking. It's silly. It's silly to think that a mere statue built by men set inside a temple built by men would have any power at all. But this is also heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because so many were embracing a hopeless lie. This is what it means to be lost. They were lost in their sin, clinging to the empty promises of an imaginary and powerless goddess. Here's the beauty of what's recorded in Acts, though. Into a world of rebellion and idolatry, God's love was being boldly declared and sinners were being rescued. That's why there's tension here. Even someone like Demetrius recognized this. He not only refers to people turning away, but he actually gives a great little summary of what Paul was teaching. Look at the end of verse 26. Saying that God's 
made with hands are not God's. Okay. I mean, he's grasping some of what Paul and the other believers are declaring. Right, and this, this truth is at the very heart of the gospel. There is only one true God, and he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And this God sent his son, Jesus, who alone deserves the worship of every person because he is the Messiah, very God and very man, and therefore anything and everything else that is declared to be a God is nothing more than an idol made by human hands or created by human imagination. You're either the God of the Bible or you're false. This is what Paul declared so skillfully in Athens. Flip back to chapter 17 quickly and look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Friends, listen to how John Stott explains the profound danger and error of idolatry. He writes, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God and us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. There is no logic in idolatry. It is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. That's the message that was being declared. And that's why it's causing such a problem for Demetrius and for others. This is why it's stirring up so much anger in them. The gospel confronts idolatry and it offends the idolater. By declaring without apology that there is one true God and the only way to experience peace with him is through Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ. It would be good for us. It would be good for us to pause for a moment and consider that the kind of idolatry Luke records here is not a thing of the past. This is one reason the task of world missions is so urgent. 
with over 41% of the world's population still unreached, we know that idolatry is rampant and billions of people are enslaved in their false worship and hopelessness. Here's just one example. Every 12 years, there's a Hindu festival called Kumela. During the two-week festival, as many as 60 million Hindus will show up at one of four sites where they will bathe in the river Ganges. You've probably seen videos or pictures of this. They will do this because the Ganges is considered sacred and is personified as a goddess. The river is worshipped by Hindus who believe that bathing in it causes the remission of sins and facilitates liberation from the cycle of life and death. That's believed right now. Brothers and sisters, the reality of this kind of idolatry should lead all of us to pray fervently and to engage meaningfully in getting the gospel to those who need it most. Now, there's another kind of idolatry found in our text, and it's exposed by the gospel as well. Look again at verses 24 and 25. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Demetrius actually cites several reasons for his anger over the ministry of Paul. But it seems clear from our text that the root cause of his anger is greed. He's losing money. The gospel was advancing and God was rescuing. I mean, think about this. This is wonderful. The gospel was advancing and God was rescuing so many people from idolatry that the idol-making business was drying up. And so Demetrius wants to make sure his fellow idol-makers are becoming as angry about all of this as he is. One theologian describes the dots that Demetrius was trying to connect for his fellow silversmiths. He's reminding them, quote, that anything threatening the cult of Artemis would also threaten their pockets. You see, the gospel isn't just exposing a blatantly false religion, but it's also exposing what the silversmiths love most, their money. And what does Scripture tell us in Colossians 3 and verse 5? Therefore, put to death whatever in you is worldly, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, I, I doubt, I doubt that there are many here this morning who are engaged in the kind of idolatry that 
kneels before a statue and worships it. But I know, I know there are some here who are engaged in idolatrous sins, like impurity and lust and greed. Friends, let this text be a sober reminder that idolatry takes on many forms, but all idolatry at its core is the same. It's an expression of our rebellion against God. As the gospel advances through Ephesus and all Asia, people are being transformed by Jesus and idolatry is being exposed and people are getting angry. So let me conclude with this. What what should believers do when this happens? Or let's make it more personal. What should our response be when we face gospel opposition? So this is our response to gospel opposition. Here's a synopsis of what happens in verses 28 through 41. You've heard them read already. So let me just summarize them. After Demetrius makes his case for why his friends and neighbors should be angry, well, they all become very angry and they begin to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, mass chaos and confusion then ensues. Two of Paul's friends are dragged into a 25,000 seat theater, which is still standing today. Paul wants to come to the aid of his friends, but he is stopped by some very wise fellow disciples. And the picture the text paints is one of absolute mayhem. Into this crazy scene steps the town clerk, which doesn't sound that impressive, but it's a man that historians tell us was one of the highest local officials in Ephesus, and exercise great influence over the affairs of the city. This man steps forward, quiets the crowd, and calmly explains four things. And you can see them all in the text. First, in verses 35 and 36, he reminds those gathered that the whole world knows that Ephesus is the guardian of Artemis, and this won't change So everybody should chill out. Second, in verse 37, this local official explains that Paul's friends aren't actually guilty of anything. Which means they're innocent. Third, verses 38 and 39. Demetrius and his riotous band are reminded that There is a lawful way to go about trying these men if, in fact, they are guilty. But an angry mob is not the way. So what's happening is unlawful and wrong. And then fourth, verse 40. The citizens of Ephesus are actually themselves in danger of being charged with civil disorder. After the city clerk calmly enlightens the people, notice how this episode concludes in verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
Okay. I mean, given what we've seen throughout Acts so far, the violence, death, and imprisonment of God's people, this is a pretty remarkable turn of events. And it's not only remarkable, because this is a rare instance of a government actually doing its job. No, there's, there's more here. This is what I find most instructive. I want you to see a glaring contrast. When the worshipers of Artemis feel like their goddess is under attack, which is essentially what Demetrius says in verse 27, look at it with me. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Listen, when, when worshipers of Artemis believed that she was under attack, they had to take matters into their own hands. Why? Because she can't do anything for herself. You see, friends, there is, there is nothing about false worship and idolatry that gives hope or produces contentment and peace and joy. The people of Ephesus had to come to the aid of their goddess in her time of need. This is a picture of absolute impotence. Artemis is completely powerless. Now, contrast that with the gospel that was sweeping through Ephesus and all across Asia. The Christian gospel does not present a God that needs us. But it presents a God who comes to us in our greatest need and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's the exact opposite. And no power in the universe can stop his plan, and no power can stop the spread of his kingdom. So friends, this is why the followers of Jesus in our text don't panic. And they don't have to take matters into their own hands. When the one you worship has already conquered death and now sits enthroned in heaven, you can joyfully rest in his loving and capable arms during times of great trial. Because you know that he is both sovereign and he's good. And he is actively working for his own glory and for the benefit, the eternal benefit of his children. Brothers and sisters, no matter what happens on this world's stage, and no matter what kind of 
gospel opposition arises, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Rather, pray with confidence. Speak with boldness. And then watch with anticipation. What will God do? How will he work? He is not a distant and disconnected deity. He is not a graven image who has no power. He is not someone who needs us to come to his aid in his time of need. No, he is actively orchestrating. He is sovereignly working so that we can rest. So that we can rest in his loving care. Let's pray.